of people who are hospitable. And this week, uh, we're going to talk about um, how or one of the ways in which God ensures that we as a people will endure until the end, that we will make it until the end, until Jesus returns or God calls us home. What, is he, what has he chosen to do to, to, to ensure that that happens? And so that's what our text is going to be detailing today. So we're going to be in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14. Uh, so if you have a Bible, please... Um, Please go there uh, with me. Um, we'll be camping out in Hebrews chapter 3, um, looking at the, the, how the author lays out this, this vision that God has for the endurance of his family, of his people. Um, what we like to do t- in, in, these, in these settings is kind of set up the context so that we can uh, understand the text maybe more richly, more fully. And so the context of Hebrews, in terms of the first audience, uh, there was great uh, tribulation and great persecution happening to the people in uh, the, the people of God in Rome, and there was a there was a tension there. there. They had went from Judaism into Christianity, and now the world was coming for them, and the pressures of the of the the society was coming for them, and there was temptation amongst the body to shrink back into the way things used to be, into trusting in. Judaism and the, the, the sacrificial system in Moses and all of these things that they grew up um, identifying with as their, as, their, as their identity. And now they've been called out of that into something better and something greater. And there's that tension to go back there. They really felt like they were in the midst of a war, of a battle. And indeed they, they were. And, and, and so are we. And we're going to see in our text who the enemy is of this, of God's people, and, uh, and what God has chosen to do about that. Um, we are indeed in a, in a war, and in our text, we see that our enemy, let's read it together, verses starting in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our, our greatest enemy, the thing that is the greatest enemy to God's people is sin. And we are in a cosmic war uh, uh, against sin. You, you look at the start of the story in Genesis chapter 3 and the introduction of sin into our lived experience and you look at what the devil chose to do to attempt to, to thwart the work that God was doing and his desire for perfect fellowship with his people, he introduced a lie. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 that lie is, can God be trusted? God withholding something good from you. And he says to the to the woman, he says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree? And he, he, he continues on, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. Can God be trusted? 
He's, hold, he's withholding something good from you. The first sin, the first volley in the battle between God and his enemy, the devil, and we see him, the devil, use that lie to attempt to frustrate and distort and confuse and confound God's people. And from that moment forward, the text says that God told the, the serpent that I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. There's going to be animosity between you and the, pe- the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So we have this, this setup from the very beginning that the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the devil, death and its minion and its, and its cohort sin is going to be in battle with the offspring of the woman. And we see in, in the biblical narrative, the history of redemption, the offspring of the woman is Jesus. And God says the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. We see that final death blow that the offspring of the woman is going to win but we uh, know that the sin is still present in the life of the believer. And so throughout Hebrews, one of the themes that we see is an already, but not yet, reality of the Christian. It's already happened. Jesus has conquered death. He has been victorious over the seed of the serpent, starting in Genesis 3, when God back then promised that that would be the case. It has happened. It is done. But we still have an enemy. We still have a great enemy. And so he, the author of Hebrews, is admonishing the people, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's a call to a wartime mentality. Man, I tell you, as I was researching this, I was thinking, why, why are we not so, why am I not? I don't want to say we so much. Why am I not so uh, terrified and on guard and, and just like watching sin like a hawk because of, of the fact that it's my enemy? Why am I not like that on a more regular basis? And I think there's a sense in which we, we, we need to cultivate in our community a, a wartime mentality. You, you look at uh, Bonhoeffer as a perfect example of this and and in external war, when external war breaks out and how people mobilize because it's so obvious there's war. I mean, it's a physical thing. It's happening all around us. And so in his story, taking some, a group of, 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 of brothers to go and live together and try to do life together. Why? Because there was all this external stuff that was happening. World War II was about to break out. So they had that physical representation of the spiritual reality that we are in a war and it, it caused them to understand deeply how much they needed one another in order to endure. And in the same way, we are in that same place, brothers and sisters. Nothing has changed. We might not have war, physical war broken out amongst us, but we are in the midst of a physical or spiritual war and our author is calling us to take care. Take care. There's casualties, brothers and sisters, all around us. I mean, how many of you have known somebody who was a part of the body and, and, and departed and left? We've heard stories recently of people who, within our midst, who have said that Christianity is a thing of my past. It's, it's, it's a part of my past. There is a battle going on, and sin's desire is to lead us away from the living God. And we see casualties all around us. 
so we are to cultivate this sense of urgency lest we be one of those who are led astray. And what's crazy about our text is that in, in so many ways, God's answer to all of these questions, how are we going to endure? How are we gonna experience health? How are we gonna experience life? How are we gonna come back from dangerous places? How are we gonna have somebody come to us in, in times of need and give us a word of encouragement? His answer is the local church. His answer is the people sitting in this room. He's chosen to use you guys and me to do that work for one another. Your faith then, according to our text, my main aim is this, your faith will not endure without family. Your faith will not endure without family because brothers and sisters, we have an insidious enemy. In our text, it gives us two things that this enemy does. Verse 13, it says, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful, as we saw in Genesis chapter 3. Did God really say he's withholding something good from you? It is the greatest evil in the universe. Every thing in this world, every blessing, every, every experience can be perverted by sin. Everything. The love of a father towards his son, of a mother towards her daughter, the most purest seemingly relationships that we can experience in this world, sin can pervert it. Sin can make every good thing into a horror, every good thing into gravel in the gut. How? How does it do that? How is it so insidious in that? It's because it's deceptive. It's deceptive. If sin were to walk down the, out the, down this county road, out, you know, right down the stage here, up to the stage and present itself to us, fully sinning, dressed up as sin, man, by the grace of God, you'd be like, I, I don't want anything to do with that. I mean, that's clearly not gonna produce joy in my life. That's clearly not gonna be something that's gonna be honoring to God. That's obvious that it's not gonna be something that's gonna be beneficial and fruitful for me and for my people. If sin were to dress itself up as sin, we'd reject it by the grace of God outright, but that's not how sin works. It's deceptive. Sin walks down dressed in uh, normal clothes, slightly off. Sin presents itself in another veneer, in another aesthetic. It's, it's deceptive. You know, I had an experience when I was in, uh, in college. I was in charge of leading uh, activities at a kid's summer camp. And, man, kids are wild now, right? And so I had this idea that what I was going to do was I was going to take breakfast that morning. I was going to collect all the leftovers, and I was going to put in this big bucket, and we're going to do bobbing for apples. And I was like, man, these kids are wild, man. An adult would see that slop and be like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's, that's revolting. But for a kid... You throw some apples in there and you make it a competition and you give them a prize if they win, if they, bob in, if they actually do it. I had to coax them, but I gave them a candy bar if they did it. Man, kids got wild and they all wanted to go do it. Bob for apples in this disgusting slop. See, to the adult, that's, 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 there's, there's nothing appealing about that. But sin allures itself. It gives itself a mystique in the same way that those kids became drawn to it after I prettied it up with some of these other things. And now they wanted to jump into that slop and bob for apples. That's, that's kind of how sin is. It, it, it dresses itself up differently. It's kind of like 
It's kind of like a master fisherman, you know? Man, you talk to a master fisherman, you're like, okay, I want to go catch some salmon. I want some sashimi. I want to get some salmon. What, what should I use? And the master fisherman's like, okay, where are you going to be fishing? Well, I'm going to be over here on this lake or this ocean or whatever. He's like, okay, I know exactly what they like there. It's this lure. It's this bait. It, 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 you do it this way, you go at this time, you go in this way, you stay for this long, and you are going to get the fish in that spot. Why? Because he knows. That's kind of how sin is. Sin knows us individually. It's nuanced. What's something that, that's revolting to you might actually be tempting to me and vice versa. Sin is deceptive. Sin is deceptive, and it ruins everything. Think about it. Think about since children in this world, its offspring, every, every form of conflict. Every time a, a, a person yelled at another person because it got in their way. Every time a, a, a baby is aborted in the womb. Every time a, a father is faithless to his wife. Every time a mother is neglectful to her children. Every form of racism, every form of injustice, every child who's on the street begging all over the world. All of those things are a result of sin. Closer to home. Every time that we're short with one another. Every time when we're, we're puffing ourselves up with pride and defensive over something that we've done. Every time that we trample over somebody because we want to be lifted up. Every time we sever a relationship because of selfishness. Every time we, we, we go online and do something we're not supposed to do because we want to be gratified in ourselves. All of those instances, every single one, brothers and sisters, is a result of sin. This is its children. These are its implications. And I don't know about you, but we ought to hate sin more than we do. Every broken relationship, every, every regret, every time we say, man, why did I do that? Finds its roots can be traced back to sin and believing the great lie that the enemy gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that God can't be trusted. He is withholding something better from you than his presence. If sin dresses itself up as sin, we'd say, that is a lie. There's no way that could be better than God. But that's not what it does. It's deceptive. It dresses itself up differently. And what's its great goal? Its great goal is to cause us to fall away from the living God. To fall away. Look what it says again. Take care, brothers. Verse 12. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And what is that heart going to lead us to? It's going to lead us to fall away from the living God. It wants to destroy you. Secret sins, veiled sins, sins which we are not even aware of have the capacity to ruin us, to cause us to fall away from all that is true and real and ugly. Sin is waiting outside that door even now. Snatch the word of God, the seed that's planted in your heart, in all of our hearts. After the course of our time together worshiping our God, it would have those seeds and it would pervert those seeds and it would cause those seeds to be choked out. Sin is deceptive and destructive. And every time we believe and take the bait, a crazy thing happens. And this is the scariest thing, brothers and sisters. 
in our text, it tells us what happens. A crazy thing happens. Our hearts begin to become hardened. Hardened. What does it mean that when he says, take care, watch each other, exhort each other? Why? Because sin hardens. The deceitfulness of sin hardens the heart. What does it mean that it hardens? This is what's so scary to me as I was studying this. Hardening implies not easily touched or not easily penetrated with truth or beauty or life. Not easily touched, not easily penetrated with truth, beauty, love, and the attributes of God in this world. That's what hardening does to us. Sin leads us away from God through breeding unbelief. This hardening is a product of unbelief. Again, the lie, did God really say, is God withholding something from you? And what happens with unbelief over time, we look at the example of the Israelites in the text that was read this morning in Exodus and in uh, earlier on in chapter 3 of Hebrews, the author brings to view the Israelites wandering in the desert after God rescued them out of slavery. You, you think of what, is, what does sin do? It hardens. And what does that look like? The Israelites were in God's presence daily. They had just seen in that same generation God do miraculous things to rescue them out of Egypt. Miraculous things. He was in their midst physically. And what did they do over and over and over again? They questioned his goodness. They questioned his goodness. He was withholding something from them. It would be better off their back in Egypt. It would be better off their back in slavery. You say, how can that be? That's so irrational. Sin is deception. And unbelief breeds hardening in the heart. And their hearts were hardened to the extent that they could not look at God and receive his truth and receive him as being real and lovely and precious and better than anything that sin would offer them as an alternative. They couldn't see that. They couldn't experience that. Why? Because of the hardness of their hearts. Hardening of the hearts is a, is a scary, scary reality, brothers and sisters. And we are not unlike the Israelites. We are prone to unbelief and we are prone to allowing unbelief to creep into our lives and we are prone to allowing it to stay there for a season and as a result of that our hearts become more and more hardened and ergo we are less and less able and likely and able to experience the beauty and the love and the joy of the presence of God in our lives it steals it from us it's like, a, it's like a child who's grown used to just playing in a puddle of water. C.S. Lewis uses this in a beautiful illustration. He's content. <laughs> he, he thinks there's nothing better than this dirty puddle of water on the side of the road. He's, he's content with that. Why? Because he's forgotten that just around the bend there is the Pacific Ocean in all of its beauty, in all of its grandeur. How is it possible that he could be content? the hardening of the heart because of sin. That's how it's possible. And brothers and sisters, that is an ever-present reality, ever-present possibility for us, even now. Every time we take the bait and believe the lie, 
this happens. This happens. Hardening is bred from familiarity. Again, maybe sin dressed itself up as sin to you the first time you saw it. And maybe you're like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's dangerous for a person like me. That's not going to produce joy. Maybe it was something you saw online with a, a post of someone who tried to feed you a, a specific narrative about how to live life or, or what's most important. And you said, no, 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 that's, that's folly. But then, but then maybe like over time you're like, you know what? You're exposed to it enough and you start to get, you start to warm up to it a little bit. You know, we use this analogy in kids camp where, where, where when it comes to sin, you see a bucket there and you're like, you're like, hmm, you know, that actually kind of looks tempting. That Maybe I do want to try that out at least one time. See if it does anything for me, you know. So you stick your foot in the bucket. You're like, oh, that actually, actually kind of feels good. It makes me feel loved or it makes me feel wanted where I don't think God has given me that right now or, or it makes me feel a certain way and, and I, I feel like it's, it's a little bit better than what God has been giving me because I feel, I feel hollow inside or, or whatever. That kind of feels good and, and then we stick our other foot in and then we become familiar with it. And then something that we would have been repulsed with previously, it starts to actually seem compelling to us. This is what sin does in that hardening. And so what is God's great answer to this? How does he keep us from falling away? This is what's so crazy about our text. He says to us in verse 13, but exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day. We are so needy and so prone to this that God says we need to be doing this work to each other every day. And what does it mean? What does it mean? You know, I like this analogy. As we're going through this series on living life together, I, I want us to just for a moment, see, I'm a fantasy guy. And I know there's some fantasy people in the, in the room that like fantasy. I've talked to some of, the, some of you guys about this. I, I, want, you to, to, I want us to, to enter into a, a, a mindset that we're, we're going to transport back in time. We're going to be in medieval times. And we're, we're, we, we, we live in this little city, but it's got some decent walls, and it's got a castle to protect us, okay? And, and we get word that the, that they, that the, the army is coming, and they, they want to devout, they want to take over things. And they wanna, they're gonna, there's going to be a siege, and there's going to be a battle, and, and all this stuff. And, and so as a community, we're like, okay, well, we've got we to put men on the, on the walls. We've got to have you know, our, our food has got to be squared away, our access to water, all these things. We're planning for this battle, this siege to come. And there's this one weakness in our castle, one weakness in our defenses. There's a little gate in the back, a little wooden gate. Nobody knows about it. It's kind of hidden, tucked away. It's got some brushes that, 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 uh, that obscures it from view from the outside of the, of the walls. But, but if the enemy finds out about that, man, uh, we're going to be in trouble. If they discover that little weakness in our defenses, we're going to be in trouble. So what do we do? What is the most logical thing for us to do as a people to protect our city from the potentiality of them finding that, that vulnerability in our defenses? Well, naturally, we would put our strongest, most courageous, most fearless warriors to guard that gate. Our strongest warriors we would assign to that vulnerability to that gate, if the enemy finds it, we'll put our best warriors to, 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 to combat it, to defend it. I love that analogy because that's what God has chosen to do for us. 
when we're confronted with the reality that sin is deceptive, it's so deceptive, and it, it, it comes at us in different ways, and, and the, the consequences of sin, it, it, it begins to breed unbelief, and that unbelief hardens the heart, and that hardening of the heart makes it so we can't experience the beauty of God. God's chosen to put his strongest warriors at our defense, at our weakest gates, and who are those strongest warriors? They're the people in this room. They're the people in, our, in the church. They're the brothers and sisters of Christ that you have in your life. Those are your strongest warriors that God is putting up at your weakest gates. Those are the ones that are going to help you when the deluge of lies bombards you every day. When you're confronted with narratives in this world that are tempting you to believe something about God that isn't true. The people of God are the strongest warriors at your weakest gates. What does it mean? How do we do that? How, how are we those strong warriors for each other? Our text says one of the ways is, last week we looked at hospitality. This week it is exhortation. Exhortation. There's two types of exhortations that I see that we, that we fulfill for one another. The word exhort means to strongly encourage to strongly attempt to persuade. Type one is to strongly encourage us to believe that Jesus is better. That when God says my presence is what you need for ultimate joy, he is telling you the truth. And so we call ourselves and each other to believe that in the midst of all the lies that tell us otherwise. Type one is a form of encouragement. We have this beautiful picture of this in the, in the scriptures. When David is, he's, he's, he's fleeing Saul, he's being pursued. He's going from town to town and, and they're betraying him and going and telling Saul, hey, David's here. And, and, and David will get a word that, that they're coming and then he'll escape to go to the next town. And he's, he's in the midst of a deepest, darkest struggle being pursued by an enemy for, this, for the very purpose of, because he, he, is, he, he wants to follow God and be faithful to God's calling in his life. He's being pursued unto death and and uh, we have this, this beautiful word in 1 Samuel 23, verse 16. And in the midst of this, Jonathan, Saul's son, it says, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in the Lord. David's in his darkest moment. And what does God do to ensure he endures? He sends a flood give him a word to remind him of who God is and that helps him find strength in the Lord how many times has a brother or sister come and done that to you given you a word in the midst of you're, you're, you're struggling with something you're, you're in the trenches you're, you feel like you maybe you're wandering in the desert you're dry and a brother or sister comes to you and God uses them to give you a word and it strengthens you and it quickens you. Have, you. have you had that happen? Have you, have you done that for somebody else? We are to watch each other's backs in this world. Not in the sense of putting each other down to elevate ourselves, but in the sense of a wartime mentality. Because brothers and sisters, we have an enemy, and this enemy is out to destroy us. And we must rely upon each other in the most consequential ways. 
life or death ways, brothers and sisters. I think this happens, this, this ability to exhort one another, I think it happens more readily when kinship is cultivated amongst us. When we start to uh, form strong bond, relational bonds with each other. I think one of the great ways that kinship is formed is, is when we fight battles together. We go out together side by side for the sake of the gospel. We go, we go do something for God. Uh, recently, I had a brother do that for me, engaging in the, in the work of the gospel at my gym, engaging with gym members who need Jesus, allowing me to come alongside and do that work with him, meeting with somebody and giving them words of life. Man, we, I left that, that dinner. I was on fire. Why? Because I was ministering with a brother. Because God was using us to do a work in this world. My kinship towards that brother was cultivated and, and stoked. I love that brother because we did work together. This is, the, this is the type of ways that we can cultivate kinship. And when we do that, we will be so much more able to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to call each other to the, the reality that Jesus is better. You know, this, this, this exhortation is, is not just in big things. You know, it's not just in, in big things, it's in small things. I can remember when we first got back from COVID and one of the first worship services that I came back to and, and everybody experienced similar stuff with COVID, the sense of isolation, being, being, being away from the body and, and all the ramifications that that comes with. And when our first, one of our first worship services back, I remember I was, I was sitting up and I was next to the pains. I was next to Orion and Doug. And uh, we, were, we, we were singing, right? And... And, and I heard the brothers singing, and it was, it was a, a song about the church. Now, church, arise and put your armor on. And this, the imagery of, of brothers in arms, of, of we're in this together, of we have each other's backs to fight these battles, they, they began to pop up in my mind, and I can remember just having to stop and singing because I was, I was brought to the point of tears. As I'm listening to Doug and Orion belt out these words of truth, it. Those brothers exhorted me in that moment simply by their presence in that place, worshiping together with me. That, that strengthened me. It reminded me of how much I had missed the gathered body of believers and how much we need each other. I had almost grown hardened to that reality. I had forgotten just how precious it is, how beautiful it is moment reminded me because they exhorted me and, and it happens in the big stuff brothers and sisters we need to be entering into each other's stories i have a, a couple guys that i meet with for bible study over time kinship is developed when we're in that context we start to to love one another deeply we start to encourage one another i don't know how many times i've gone into that feeling man i don't really want to meet today <laughs> i got this going on or this going on or this going on but but uh, I can't cancel because the brothers are relying upon me. All right, I'm going to go. And so I go to the little Bible study. We go sit outside and we go do our thing. And at the end of it, I'm like, yes, we can do this. God is good. Jesus is better. Exhortion, exhorting one another daily. In the small things, in the more substantial things, this is what we need to be doing for one another. 
But it's not just an encouragement in that sense. It's also a warning. Look at the text. Look what the text says. Verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's an encouragement to believe Jesus is better, but it's also a warning. It's also a warning. Examine ourselves while there is still time. Are you believing things that are not true about God? Is it cultivating unbelief in your heart? And is that producing a hardness? It's a warning. It's calling each other to to task sometimes, to come away from dangerous things. You know, there's a, in the Song of Solomon, there's the, that, that beautiful love letter, um, Song of Solomon. There's this, there's this text where the, the groom is calling the, the, the bride away from dangerous things. And, and in verse, uh, or chapter 4, verse 8, the, the groom says this. He says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana." from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. He's, he's calling her away from dangerous things, from dens of lions, from the peaks, from, from, the, mouths of lep- from the mountains of leopards. He's, he's, he's calling her to come down, to come away, to, to, to come back. So much of our exhorting one another is related to that. Come away from that dangerous thing. We're hanging out with one another, and we hear something in, in the way we're talking about something. And the Holy Spirit kind of peaks something in our, in our mind. Like, that doesn't sound right. And so we, and so we pray into it, and, and, and we start to see, hear and, and listen to patterns in that person's life. And we say, you know, there's, there might be something there that I need to speak into. And I, and, and I need to do it with 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 tenderness and care, but I, but I need to help that brother because I think he's believing something that's not true about this world, or I think he's putting too much stock in this and not trusting in Jesus, or whatever it may be, innumerable forms and permutations of the way that sin does this. And so God calls us to go and, and to go to that brother. Man, I even saw this modeled recently. It was beautiful. A brother went to another brother in my presence, and I got to see this model with gentleness, with concern. This is, this is how we need to be with one another when we see these things uh, it, it, taking place in our lives, calling us to come down from dangerous places, from dangerous ideas and dangerous philosophies and dangerous movements of our hearts and dangerous influences. Man, when, I, when I, they called me to be an elder at our church, some of the brothers came for me. And they said, man, I'm concerned about this. I heard, I, I heard you're into this. I'm, I'm concerned. They came to me. I had another one of the sisters, she came to me. She said, I'm concerned about this. And we had tough conversations, but they were good conversations. Why did they come? Because they wanted to exhort me to come away from what they perceived as a dangerous movement of my heart. And praise God for that. There's been other times when I've been separated from the body. There was a time about four or five years ago when I, we were coming to, to the service, but I was disengaged. And I can remember just, even Chelsea would be like, man, I, don't, I never hear you singing anymore. In the service, like what's going on? It was so obvious that I was just like disconnected from the body, and and my heart was just becoming cold, and it was growing hard. and And I can remember one of the brothers, Josh. He's like, "Dude, let's go get some coffee." I was like, "All right." We sit down, and I was like, "Brother," he's like, "Okay, man." And we're not we're not like 
real rush because I'm excited about the gospel that tomorrow is going on. That led to a, a conversation of restoration where, where he called me out of a dangerous place, the place of isolation, the place of, the, of my heart was growing hard. He, he did that for me. Man, I'll forever love that brother because of that. Kinship. <laughs> a brother comes for you, a sister comes for you, calls you out of something. The kinship that's formed, if you receive that, beautiful, beautiful. You might be wondering like me, man, that seems like a lot of responsibility, Josh. We got to play this role for one another. I mean, we got to be like dialed in to each other's lives and listening for little things of deception that we're beginning to believe or in all this work. We got to have the courage to have a tough conversation. Man, that's a lot. You're asking a lot. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. I mean, I'm with you. I'm with you. I like to keep things at the superficial level because it's just easier. So what, what do we do? Well, I want us to look at something in our text that hopefully will be an encouragement. Look at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. It says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What I want us to see out of this is Jesus is faithfully over the house and we are the house. What does that mean? Jesus will sustain us. Jesus is behind everything, behind every kind word, behind every, every pat on the back, behind every time we've sung together and, and encouraged one another through our singing, behind every tough conversation, behind every time that the Holy Spirit has pricked our hearts to pray for a brother. It's always been Jesus behind that behind that movement, orchestrating and moving us to do this work. If you think that you can't do it, you're in the same company as me because I don't think I can, but Jesus can. The Bible says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Jesus will sustain. He will do this work. He will ensure that we endure. He's chosen to use little, weak, sinful, silly, frivolous people like you and me. He always chooses to run to the little. It's the Gideon's call. He chooses the weak one. He chooses the things that are not to do great things in this world. He's chosen his church to, to exhort one another to ensure that we sustain until the end. But he is the one who will do the work. He is the one. We can have confidence because we share in him, because he is the one that's overseeing the house. And the final analysis, sharing in Christ, the reality that Jesus oversees the house will result in our preservation. But hear this, brothers, sisters. If some among us do fall away, and we know that there will be ones that will fall away, and they never return, it will mean that they never knew 
the loving kindness of our Savior. They never tasted the sweetness of his mercy and grace. He will not lose any of us that are his. There is no power under heaven that can snatch us out of his hand. He will ensure that we endure until the end. So take hope in that. In our meager attempts to exhort one another, Jesus is ultimately the one that's going to ensure that they're successful and that we're successful in making it to the end. We must have gospel lenses. How can we do this better? We must have gospel lenses. We must be cultivating that in our own lives. How can we identify something in, in, in our brother that, that, could, that, 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 that they're believing a lie or our sister that they're believing something that's not true about God if we're not thinking about these things in our own context, in our own heart? We have to be cultivating gospel lenses, seeing the world through the lens of the gospel. What is true about God? And how is that narrative that's prevalent in our community a lie, a distortion of that truth? We need to be experts of culture in our community. Not so much experts of culture in someplace else in Texas or Florida or, or somewhere else in the world. Experts of culture here and the things that we're dealing with here in our context. We need to be seeing those things through the lens of the gospel so that we can be cultivating those opportunities with one another. Calling each other to remember that Jesus is better. And here's how he's better. Here's how he's a better source of identity. Here's how he's a better uh, place to find your joy, your fulfillment, your peace, your contentment. We must develop kinship. Brothers and sisters, we need to be meeting with one another. I know we are, and that's beautiful. Let's continue to do that. Let's fight to press past kind of the, 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 the superficial moments of conversations. When the opportunity arises, let's, let's, let's press in and ask each other, how are you doing spiritually? What has God been teaching you this week? Or, or what are those things that you're struggling with this week? Or how can I pray for you? It is, it is a, it's a reframing of conversational uh, motifs, brothers and sisters. It is hard. I, I'm a, I'm, I don't do well in this. I wish that I did better. I want to do better. So let's encourage each other in, in that light. Let's encourage each other in that light. Lastly, what are we, what are we, what are we enduring for? What, what, what's the whole point of this? We saw in, uh, in, the, in the, the biblical narrative, history of redemption, that God said that the, the seed of the, of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Later on in the narrative, we get Abraham. And what does God promise Abraham? He promises him three things. He promises him land. He promises him a people. And he promises him that through his seed, all the people of the world would be blessed. God rescues the Israelites out of Egypt to go where? To the promised land. And they didn't make it, our text says, because of the hardness of their heart. There's a land that God is planning for us. The promised land that he was, the physical promised land that he was bringing the Israelites to is a picture of the final promised land, the final rest when God creates the new heavens and the new earth. The blessing that he promised Abraham was Jesus, that through his seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That was Jesus. The people is the remnant. And even though the Israelites failed in so many ways in that 40 years, God always retained the remnant of believers. Always. There's always been a remnant. Always been a remnant preserved of God's people throughout all time. And here we are, members of that remnant, working our way towards something. And what is it? Well, I want us to see two things about this, this rest. One is that Jesus' re reward is in view. As the son of the house, in Israelite culture, we know that they were the inheritors. 
So if God is the builder of the house and Jesus is the son of the house, that means Jesus is the one who will inherit the house. That means that we are, crazy as it might seem, his inheritance. So our endurance until the end is, is secured because we must be there to be presented to him on that day. You got this, uh, this beautiful story. I've, I've said this before. It's been like five years, and a lot of you have, weren't even around back then, so I can say it again. There, there's these two young, young, uh, young Germans, Moravians, and back in the uh, early 1800s, and they heard about an island off the coast of Africa. And on this island, it was an island full of slaves. That's all there was, about 2,000 slaves. And they heard about this, and the slave owner of that island said, I don't want any Christians on this island. I don't want any missionaries, nothing. If a missionary, if a pastor uh, shipwrecks, I'll take him in, but I'm going to send him off on the next ship. I don't want any Christians, nothing. This is my island. None of that nonsense is going to make, make its way here. And so these two Moravian young boys, 20-something young boys, they heard about this. And they were so moved by this notion that there's going to be 2,000 slaves living on this island, never with the opportunity to hear the name of Jesus, that they contacted the, contacted the man. And they knew he, they wouldn't allow him to come visit. And so they told him, sir, we want to sell ourselves to your service. We want to sell ourselves to lifelong slavery. And the man said, okay. I'll, you can use the money that uh, I would pay for you to pay for your ship to make it here. And so they, they did. And so they're, they're with a, they're, they're a church family, and some of them aren't, aren't quite understanding why they're doing this. And they're joining each other to go to the docks the day that they're to depart. And they get on the ship, and people are weeping, and moms and sons and brothers and sisters, and, and, and some of them are unsure, why why are you doing this? This isn't going to be like a five-year term. This is going to be, I mean, this is lifelong. And the story goes, the two boys, as they got on the, on the ship, and as the ship was departing, they locked hands together, and they said in a loud voice, may the lamb receive the full reward for his supper. May the lamb receive the full reward for his suffering. What's at stake, brothers, our endurance? What's at stake is Jesus' inheritance, that he would receive the full reward for his suffering, for he is worthy of our lives. He's worthy of this inheritance. That is what's at stake. That is what's at stake. But also, boy, do we ever benefit from it. God's rest. God's rest is at stake. And I'm going to leave you with this exhortation. I'm going to close with this. There's this uh, spoken word. It, it details God's rest. And that thing that as believers we're looking forward to. And, uh, and it goes like this. On that day, the day of God's rest, we will worship a name more excellent than Moses and the angels. With purified minds, refined speech and heart, where unity and fellowship will be perfected in the church, where divine love will rest on the hearts of the inhabitants of the new earth, then we will receive a crown, but only to cast it down at the feet of the resurrected Jesus in a perfect, ceaseless form of worship, singing glory to the liberating king who came not to conquer kingdoms, but conquer hearts and restore men back to what they were intended for and escape from this life marked by anguish. A great fountain of love flows from heaven's gates awaits us. You can take this world, you can take all of its lies, all of its fleeting pleasures, 
but give us Jesus, our future hope, and our greatest treasure, the fulfillment of all of our expectations with nothing to separate us, nothing to hinder the saints from the perfect expression of adoration, finally equipped with the right language and with the right words to express the richness of inheritance, the blessing of adoption. And we will see God with our purified eyes, purged from the sin that blinds us from seeing God as truly glorified where perfect love and affection will be expressed and experienced. But until then, brothers and sisters, let us wait with expectation for all that we will acquire in heaven. For Jesus has done everything required to save us and bring us into his presence. So to know him and behold him is our heart's desire. And there's nothing higher There's nothing greater to acquire. Holy, holy, holy is the song of the choir. His people sing his praises. Gathered from every nation, we were chosen to be holy and blameless before the earth's foundation. And all of this is on the basis of his glorious grace. And we will never grow tired of gazing upon his face and falling before his feet and worshiping at his throne. His appearances like carnelian and precious gemstones like Nothing we've ever seen, his glory will never fade. The Lamb of God who was slain to wash away sin's stain, who was crushed for our gain, his loss is our joy. We will live and worship forever in his presence. This is the reality for the believer. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the rest that we are going to endure in Jesus' finished work that we endure to. Let us remind ourselves of that. Let us call each other to that reality that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Let me pray for us. Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for these reminders that you've just built into the way we do life together exhorting one another from the pulpit, exhorting one another over coffee, exhorting one another in the ins and outs, Lord God, of our lives. I pray that as a people, you would help us to remind ourselves that you will ensure we endure if we truly have been saved and if we truly have been redeemed and that you will use each other to do that work, Father. Help us to do it well for your glory with those two views in mind that Jesus is worthy of his inheritance and that you have promised your people rest. In Christ's name I pray these things. Amen.